God speaks his word to us on this first Sunday in Pentecost from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where Peter describes the coming of the Holy Spirit to the Jews who were gathered in the upper room. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dolores. I know she was unhappy when she saw the passage because it's got like 20 different nations that none of us had ever heard of before that you've got to uh, pronounce. So, But thank you for... <laughs> for doing that. It is Pentecost Sunday, so hopefully you were read, you got the memo, you knew. No, just kidding. Um, uh, we were joking earlier, we're all Pentecostal on, uh, on this Sunday because this is the, this is the Sunday that we celebrate uh, when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles uh, and the, the outpouring of the Spirit happened there in Acts chapter 2 that we just read, so... It was October 17th, 1989. October 17th, 1989. I was living my best life as a kid. I mean, if you think about when were the glory days, of it, like, it, it might have been in this, in this realm of time. Um, I had been to two Major League Baseball games that year. Uh, one in Oakland and one in San Francisco. Um, I was living in, in Northern California at the, that time in my life, um, and my two favorite teams, besides the Texas teams, which are the Rangers and the Astros, of course, uh, those two favorite teams were in the World Series. Uh, I think there was a picture, right, 1989, welcome to the World Series. The next picture shows, if you remember, it was the Battle of the Bay. It was the Oakland A's versus the San Francisco Giants. Right, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, the Bash brothers, uh, the dynamic duo of, of Will Clark and Kevin Mitchell of the Giants. You guys remember some of these days? It was good baseball. And I was sitting inside waiting for the game to start. And all of a sudden, I heard yelling outside. And so I ran outside to see what was going on. And my dad was griping at what he thought was me, jumping up and down on top of his car, making his car shake crazy. 
And you already know what happened, if you remember. Uh, The day quickly turned from a perfect day of World Series baseball to a day of chaos. And maybe if you were watching on TV, you remember these images. That one will stick probably forever in my mind. There was an earthquake in, in the Bay Area in the, right as the game was getting ready to start, and everything turned to chaos. Um, I, I lived in California for several years, and that's the only earthquake that I remember like experiencing. Um, I don't know how. I remember like being in school and having to do all the different drills and all that stuff for it. Um, but, but this is the only memory of an earthquake that I have from, from my time living in California. Um, it was a natural disaster you had to be prepared for. Um, most of my life has been lived in Texas and in, in different places of Texas, but, but mainly in the Panhandle, which is in what we call Tornado Alley. Um, and, and I have way more memories and stories of tornadoes and uh, stuff like that. Um, and, and they're kind of a way of life. Uh, and they can be here as well, right? We're familiar with, with what all is in, ta- you know, comes along with a tornado. Um, I've been in one hurricane uh, in East Texas. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a big one. It wasn't a bad one, but I've been in one of those. I've been in a couple of different blizzards uh, in, in my life. Luckily, I've never been in a volcano uh, or a tsunami. Um, and, and one other natural disaster that I've never experienced that, that Americans aren't really familiar with uh, is one that is really common to the regions of the Bible that we read about. Um, and that is pestilence, uh, specifically locust swarms. And, and let me just tell you, we have no concept of what that means. No concept. I mean, I've seen my fair share of mosquitoes. I've seen my fair share of like grasshoppers in farm fields. Definitely that. But, but nothing like a locust swarm. Nothing like that. Nothing. Uh, th- these things are crazy. Um, it's commonplace for, for a locust swarm to be 400 square miles in size. So I'm not a good math guy, but if you take 20 miles times 20 miles, you have a 400 square mile area. That's, you know, basically to Wisconsin and, you know, the whole area, just a solid swarm of, of locusts. Um, if, if you need, you know, kind of a farm example, that's 256,000 acres, 256,000 acres, just of nothing but that. And they'll come out of nowhere. So they can be up in, in the jet stream and they'll just fly hundreds of miles in a day, come out of nowhere and just drop down and obliterate whatever's there. A 20 square mile nightmare. Um, 400 square miles nightmare, there you go. Um, they say that, that something like this consumes what 4 million humans can eat in one day. So imagine if it landed in this area, right, there wouldn't be anything left in that, in that uh, 400 square miles. Because they might stay for a few days, they might stay for a week until things are gone, and then they just, boom, gone again, take off, catch the wind. They might go 100 miles from here and land in the next place. This morning, God is going to speak to his people through the disaster of a locust swarm. And, and then, in the same book, he's going to forewarn of, of a coming army that he says is going to be so numerous, it will look like that to the people. It will look like a a swarm of locusts. That's how big the army will be that's coming upon you. 
So we're going to see that this morning, but ultimately, just like last week, we're going to see what it shows about the character of God. So let's pray as we begin our time together. Father, would you open our hearts and our minds as we study your word this morning. God, use me in this time. God, help us to see your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we began uh, a new series, uh, a series on the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And, and I started last week with Jonah. Uh, one, because it's the most known, you, you would be familiar with it. Two, because it was probably the first one written. And three, it was so different from the rest. Remember we said, it's, it's, this is like a, it was a narrative, it was a story. Everything else uh, is, is going to be different than that. It'll be more poetic, it'll be more kind of apocalyptic in nature. So it won't read quite like a story. Um, and so we need to spend a little bit of time just kind of understanding who these minor prophets were, uh, where they were, and, and, and when they were written to kind of better grasp uh, what, what these books are about. And then do they have anything to do with us, which I'm going to already tell you they do. Um, and so, so that we can do that, I'm going to just give you a quick history review. So we're, we're going back in, in, in Israel history a little bit. Remember that David is considered the best king of Israel. Uh, he gets to reign for 40 years. Um, and, and so most people kind of date that 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. That's kind of the agreed upon times. So in those 40 years, 1010 B.C. to 970. And so I've given you a handout because... There's a lot of numbers, and some of you guys like, I need graphics to kind of comprehend some of this stuff. So if you look at that timeline, it, you'll, you'll find it a little bit helpful. So it kind of can help you maybe a little bit with, with the, the timeline. So remember, David, then his son Solomon will become king and takes over after some turmoil. And, and he's going to reign from, we say, 970 to 931. So remember, we're in B.C., so it moves backwards. Until uh, we get to zero. So 970 after David to 931. And from here, things get weird. Things get real weird. Um, there's a debate on who should be king after Solomon because he kind of lived a messy life and things are a mess. And different guys are trying to get into power. And eventually to avoid a, a, just a, a, a whole civil war, they say, hey, let's just divide. We'll, we'll split up. And so the ten tribes of the north make up a, a nation. Um, and then the, the southern two tribes will make up a nation we call Judah. So, so in 930 B.C., there are now two kingdoms. It's no longer just Israel. It's northern Israel and southern Judah. Can we see the map? And this is kind of what it looks like. So the, the blue one up at the top there is, is Israel. The bottom yellow one there is Judah. Um, Jerusalem, as you maybe can see there, is in the yellow. And so the blue, they don't want to go to Jerusalem to worship like they were told to by God. And they said, we'll just create our own new place of worship. And so they stayed where you see that star, it says Samaria, in the middle of the blue, maybe you can see that. And so that was disobedient to God, but they didn't want to ever deal with Judah again. And so they said, we'll just worship in our own place instead of the, God's temple there in Jerusalem. And so it's all bad. It's just bad um, in the northern kingdom. Um, so remember, Israel always goes the wrong way. They never have a good king. Um, Judah is sometimes okay, sometimes good. 
mainly bad as just like Israel. So, so both of them are disobedient. It's not a good time in the in history of Israel. Um, lots of idolatry, lots of serving other gods, especially in the northern kingdom uh, of Israel. And so God has been sending people to tell them, basically, knock it off. Hey, stop this stuff. Um, and, and so through time, that gets us to the guys that we call the minor prophets. And remember, they're minor prophets not because they're not important or lesser important, but because they just wrote smaller books, more specific books. Um, the first one, as we said, is probably Jonah, and it's written somewhere 775 B.C. So remember, we're moving backwards, so uh, 775-ish. And we would say that the, the 12 minor prophets speak from, we'll just say 775 all the way down to about 450, you know, so, so 300 years, give or, give or take a few years in there somewhere. You know, 300 years of history that we're dealing with with these 12 different guys. So, so think of American history in 300 years. There's a lot of things that have been happening. There's a lot of presidents. There's a lot of wars. There's a lot of, so that's kind of what we're dealing with. We, we, and we need to know each of the specifics before we just go, oh yeah, they're talking, hey, stop sinning and stop being bad. Yes, that's true, but there's, there's so much more to this. So each of the prophets, we're going to have kind of a specific time and a specific audience and we tend to list them either as talking to Israel or talking to Judah. Sometimes they're talking to the enemies of those nations, but we'll just say you're in, you're, you know, in the category of talking to Israel, you're in the category of talking to Judah. And then we have kind of a specific time frame. So look on the back side uh, of that handout I gave you. So we've got the prophet, we've got the audience. Are you speaking mainly to Israel or to Judah? And then we've got a time frame. So so pre-exile means before they were wiped out and beaten by their armies. Mid-exile means in the midst of being conquered. And then post-exile means when they, they came back um, from, from things. And so, so just, again, a quick kind of history lesson for this. So Israel in the north, they're bad. They're defeated first in 722 by the Assyrians, who we learned a little bit about uh, with Jonah last week. Really bad, bad people, did horrible things. They take those 12 tribes, they scatter them in what we call the dispersion, and they never return. They don't come back to live in the land like we would say they do. They're gone. And then Judah is defeated in 586. And we give that date because that's the date that the temple was destroyed. So the Babylonians came at this point and conquered Judah, and that's 586. And they, instead of scattering, they take them captive. They say, you're coming with us, and they're going to make you slaves to us in Babylon. And so we call that the captivity uh, or, or exile. You're going to come with us. You're going to serve us. Um, we do know that Babylon wasn't too long later defeated by the Persians. And so um, Judah is also under captivity uh, of the Persians who let them go back to Jerusalem in 516. And so that's how we date the 70 years of exile, 586 to 516. Um, so again, Prophets are either pre-exile, mid-exile, or post-exile. Okay, and then one just last thing, kind of an overview of the prophets. Uh, the minor prophets normally have a three-part message. They're, it's pretty universal. The first one is, hey, you've broken the covenant you made with God. You did some bad stuff. Here's all the bad stuff you did. Two, here's the judgment that's going to come upon you as a result. And then the third part is kind of a message of hope or restoration. And that all of them, they look a little bit different. But that's kind of the three-part message you can just assume that's coming with any, with any of these minor prophets. 
And so now that I've given you kind of this rule of thumb about it, it's time to tell you about our book this morning, which is Joel, that doesn't fit any of the patterns I just told you. Uh, and, and that's because we don't know exactly when Joel was written. Uh, we don't know if he was writing to Judah or Israel. And uh, he's going to skip the first part of the three-part message, meaning he's not going to tell them all the specific sins that they've been committing that are bad. It's just assumed, and so it's a book about judgment mainly. Um, John Calvin talked a little bit about Joel, and he says, look, the dating of, of this really isn't that important, right? Whether it happens in the 900, you know, 700, 800 BC or 500 BC, because it's not written in a specific way. It's written in a way um, that's kind of generic. And so what he says and what most scholars say is because it's not specific and we don't know exactly when Joel was written, um, then it it means that it really has more to do with who God is and, 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 and his character. And I think that's telling. I think we're going to find that out as we, as we go uh, this morning. Um, just in case you're curious, my theory about Joel is that he's writing to Judah before the Babylonians captured in maybe the 600s. But it's just a theory. There's lots of smart guys that think it's something different than that. So... Um, let me just kind of give you a quick synopsis of the whole book, and then we're going to kind of focus in on chapter 2 after that. So, um, so, so let's kind of go through that real quick. So uh, the book starts with judgment, and it's a judgment about locusts. Um, the description in chapter 1 is terrible, and it says there's going to be a famine, and everyone uh, will be poverty-stricken be- kind of because of, of all that the locusts are going to eat. And then... Um, he just tells the people, hey, mourn and fast and, and wail as an act of repentance because of all of this. And then chapter 2 kind of keeps that same tone, um, except most scholars think that he turns from an actual swarm of locusts to an army that's coming. But he's going to describe them as locusts, but it, it really sounds more like an army. And so we think, we think it's like a warning of what's coming, whereas chapter 1 is like a promise of for sure this is happening. Um, and so we're going to talk more about that in just a minute, and we're going to go to chapter 2. Chapter, sorry, chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a promise of destruction for all the enemies of, of God's people, uh, of Jerusalem's especially. And, and Joel keeps saying this, this phrase, the day of the Lord, right? The day of the Lord is coming, and it is going to be this— ter- the day of the Lord is terrible for anybody who's not on God's side. And it says that the enemies of God are going to be brought to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And, and Jehoshaphat means— the place where the Lord is judge. And so it's a, the valley of judgment that, uh, that God's going to take on his enemies. And it's not going to be a pretty place, okay? Um, there's no scarier phrase in Scripture than being taken to Jehoshaph- the valley of Jehoshaphat on the day of the Lord. That is where you will be judged ruthlessly. Um, verse 16 of chapter 3 says it like this. It says, the lion, sorry, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you're either going to find refuge uh, in the Lord, or you're going to experience the terror of him as a roaring lion. Um, And so the the, the rest of the book promises out this judgment to anyone who has hurt his people. Um, And so maybe you're thinking, well, he's talked about kind of the the, the judgment piece. He hasn't talking, talked about the, the hope restoration thing, and maybe he hasn't given up on his people yet, and you're right if that's what you're thinking, because chapter 2 gives us this 
message of hope, this message of, of restoration in the midst of the judgment. Um, and so if, if you've got your Bibles open, you can turn to Joel chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 um, through, uh, what do I say, 32. So he's been talking about this army that could be coming, and it's going to be so massive and terrible that it will look like a, a plague of locusts. He says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Okay, so just, this is incredible stuff. We'll just take a pause for a second. Joel says, hey, go ahead and repent, because the nature of the Lord is one that he is slow to anger and one to show mercy, and so maybe he will relent from the coming judgment on us as a people. Okay, skip down to verse 18. So apparently they are going to relent. They are going to change their ways and, 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 and get rid of the sins in their lives. And we get to verse 18. So it says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So just kind of walking through this story, now the Lord is kind of going to show the mercy that he had promised. And so here it is. So go down to verse 25. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that, that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Okay, so I'm going to go back to the normal rules of preaching, where you get three things. Remember last week I broke them and gave you four. Uh, We're going to just stick with three. And so I want to draw your attention to just three amazing things, because I want to help you appreciate some of these minor books that we don't talk about very often. Um, And and so hopefully you can kind of see these three things out of the book of Joel. Um, And the first is this. Be sincere in your apology. Um, He says in verses 12 and 13, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And so we see this concept in other places as well, like in Psalm 51. But God doesn't want just lip service. He doesn't want just sacrifices. So you and I can come in here on a worship service, you know, during something like the prayer of confession, and we can read those words out loud, but God doesn't really want just that. God is ready to forgive. He, in, in fact, is zealous and pleased 
to forgive, Scripture tells us. If we do that sincerely, if we do that honestly, don't hold anything back. Don't try to downplay your sin. Right? The character of God, as we have just seen, is, is that He is gracious and He's merciful and He will love us. And He promises to forgive. And since He knows us, why in the world would we try to hold back or justify why we did what we did? And, and I love when it says to rend your hearts and not your garments. It means to mean it when you apologize. And see, back in those days, a lot of people would, would tear their clothes as a sign to show how sorry they were. But their hearts didn't change. So you can fast all you want. You can rip your clothes and pull your hair out and try to make a scene about how sorry you are. God says, I, I would rather you tear your heart over your sin and show me that you really are sorry. Don't make a show of it. Be sincere. Okay, the second thing I want to tell you is that about God is that when there is forgiveness of God, there is redemption and restoration. And we know these words, but we see it in a beautiful way here. Redemption and restoration. Verses 25 and 26 says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent amongst you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. See, God in his loving nature doesn't just pull us out of a pit. Oh, he does that, but he does more than that. He doesn't just take us out of a bad situation. He says that he will do more above and beyond. It says he restores the years. You will have plenty and be satisfied. And now we have to be careful not take this in, in too far of a direction. But can we just stop and say, I love this about God. Here's God talking to a sinful people. And they have asked for forgiveness in repentance. And he says, you will be restored. You will have joy again. You will have satisfaction and plenty. See, there had been famine and deprivation in their land because of the locusts. And he says that he would again bring satisfaction. It can feel in our lives at times like, like things will never be okay again. There will never be joy because of what we have suffered. In, in the consequences of our sins, in the, the curse of, a, of living in a sinful world, we can experience things and just say, this is terrible and it will never be okay again. It can feel that way. You and I have been in that pit. And, and if you are in that place right now, this is your verse. This is for you. To know that he can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He can take you from this terrible place that you're in where, where your sin en envelops you and you can't even breathe. Things are so painful and hard. You don't know what to do. He can take you from that place. And he can bring and restore joy. Because that's the kind of God that he is. So again, if you feel that way, if you're in this place in such a deep, dark pit of sin and pain and despair, just remember the story of the prodigal son. He says, remember the story. When he returns, he doesn't just say, yep, you can live as a servant in my house again. Just stay there and be sorry forever. No, he doesn't even listen to the apology. Right? He says, clothe him. Feed him. Hey, let's, let's have a feast. For the, he restores the joy of the son. God restores and redeems life. Because sin and the, the curse of sin doesn't get, it doesn't get the last word in our lives. God can take beauty 
from ashes. And it doesn't feel like it in the time. It doesn't feel like it when we're living in that sinful place. God can take beauty from ashes. He can do that. He restores and redeems, restores the years that the locusts have eaten. Okay, third thing, I will pour out my spirit, he says. And it's appropriate for this morning. In fact, it may have happened on purpose that we're talking about the book of Joel on Pentecost Sunday. It is this day that we celebrate the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Right after the ascension of Jesus, he says, I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to leave you this helper. And so the story happens. We read it just a few minutes ago in in, in Acts chapter 2. And amazing things start happening and everybody says, what in the world was this? And And Peter will get up and he says, hey, listen, guys, I can explain what just has taken place. And what does, he, what does he quote? He quotes Joel chapter 2. He quotes our passage. He says, remember God promised way back a long time ago that he would pour out his spirit on all peoples. On all peoples. And here it is, everybody. And so he reads Joel 2, 28 through 32. Because Peter saw what Joel had envisioned and was able to prophesy about here. The, the promise that a new thing was coming in, in what we would call the messianic age when the Messiah would come. Joel, like other prophets of his day, you know, like Isaiah, recognized that, that the Messiah would be full of the Holy Spirit. And, and he would usher in a new time, things that were, or would be very different. When, when the Spirit wouldn't just fall on special people like Moses or David, but it would be for everyone. Do you remember when Jesus begins his, his public ministry in Nazareth and he walks into the synagogue and he takes the scroll of Isaiah? Do you remember what he starts with reading? He starts with reading Isaiah 61. And the beginning of that says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he's going to talk about all the things that it does there. And, and he says, look, the Scripture is fulfilled in me. And what was he saying? I'm the Messiah. The day, this messianic age when the Spirit would come, it's here because of me, because I am the Messiah. It's fulfilled. And so now the Spirit will fall on all people, and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is such a different time. You and I want blessings in our lives. We want restoration. We want plenty. I'd love to have Ed McMahon show up at my door with one of those big checks. Actually, I wouldn't because it would be really weird if Ed McMahon showed up today. Um, it'd be a ghost, right? Uh, but we want those kinds of blessings. And, it, and what we see from Joel chapter 2 is, is the blessings of God only get more and more amazing. Joel 2 goes from these physical blessings to spiritual blessings. And to the sending of the Holy Spirit. And it means that because of the Holy Spirit, we can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And we can have direct access to God, not just priests or prophets anymore, but anyone who wants to come to Him through the Holy Spirit. It says Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who comes and He brings these blessings for us. And there's, there's this interesting little story in Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, where Moses cries out. He says, oh, if only all of God's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Just kind of this little prayer of Moses. 
And it's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. And Joel is talking about it right here. He says there's a day that that's going to be true. And Peter announces that it's here. It has come. For you and me, it means that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who enables us to live a life pleasing to God. It's the only way to live a life pleasing to God is a life in the Holy Spirit. So our encouragement this morning is that we can keep on praying and keep on asking that we would live more and more in step with the Holy Spirit. We would be more and more filled with the Holy Spirit. That can be our prayer every morning. Lord, would you fill me with your Spirit this morning so that I can live a life for you. What an incredible gift that is poured out this day that we celebrate. What an amazing gift that we've been given in the Holy Spirit. Come to the Lord, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, that You would pour out Your Holy Spirit on us in this place every day of our lives. That we would yearn for Your Holy Spirit. Not to try to live in our own power, in our own abilities, but through your Spirit. God, thank you for the gift. Thank you for the prophecy that was fulfilled through your Son, Jesus, through the pouring out of your Holy Spirit on us. In Jesus' name, we ask all this. Amen.